I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll hear from business person Catherine Gale, who's the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation and the author of The Politics Industry. She argues that our current election process is leading to an unhealthy level of partisanship and has a prescription for how to improve it. Catherine Gale, in your new book, The Politics Industry, you write, America's political system has become the primary cause of our decline and the preeminent barrier to addressing the very problems it exists to solve. When you look at America today, what are you seeing? First, I'm seeing the same frustration that caused me, Michael Porter, my co-author, and so many others to look around and say, oh my goodness, what we're doing isn't working. And people come at this from any position. So I came to this 10 years ago first out of the national debt crisis. Uh, Michael Porter came to it out of my invitation, but also because he was doing work at Harvard Business School on our economic competitiveness and whether we're a country that can grow jobs and grow income levels. And other people come to it from very specific policy angles, which is that every policy organization has begun to come to the realization that they may have a fabulous policy idea, but it has absolutely zero chance to be successful in Congress because the system is dysfunctional. And now people across the board are coming to it because they're frustrated with the division, with the dysfunction and the lack of any progress in Washington, D.C. And certainly recently, uh, our two really very troubling, tragic elements that we see, the government's response to the coronavirus and the struggles of systemic inequality and racism have also caused people to say, hmm, why can't we in the United States of America make a difference in these problems? Why are they persisting? And so that's where we are. The politics industry, people should know, it's not just a book. It's really a campaign or a cause for you. What's your mission? Uh, Susan, thank you for asking that. You're right. Here is what I care about in the end. Is Washington, D.C., specifically Congress, making progress, delivering legislation that actually solves our problem our problems in a sustainable way, that they take action on this legislation, it's actually implemented, and that over time, people across the spectrum have broad-based buy-in, meaning it's all about results. We're not here on a campaign to change who gets elected or to change the number of parties that we have or to change rules to make them more fair or more democratic, although, of course, we care about fair and democratic you know, ideals. We care about the likelihood that Congress solves problems in the public interest. And everything is directed to that. So we don't allow ourselves to be distracted by other reforms or movements that may be important for other reasons, but that don't get at the core problem of what's going wrong in Washington, D.C. Why do you describe our political system as an industry? 
Mm. So as, as you just noted, our book is called The Politics Industry, and we look at politics, so not government, but politics, the competition between politicians and all of the surrounding actors as an industry, not because it's the only way you could look at it, but because it's super helpful to look at it this way, which is to say we as Americans are very used to being consumers. We're used to being customers. Business people are used to thinking about how they're gonna grow their companies and get more revenue and um, you know, and more growth for their companies, et cetera. So when we look at it, at politics as an industry, it helps us either as customers or as business leaders to begin to understand why it's so dysfunctional. And I'll just give a hint of it. I'm sure we'll talk about it more, which is to say what looking at it as an industry reveals is that the public interest, the citizen is not the most important customer and politics is not broken, it's actually working exactly how it's designed to work, but in the politics industry, it turns out when we look underneath the hood, the politics industry has not been designed to put the public interest and solving problems for citizens first. It's been designed to put the interests of the political industrial complex, which is what we call you know, these politicians and the lobbyists and the campaign consultants in the media, everybody involved in this business of politics, we call it the political industrial complex. And it's been designed, the industry's been designed to put them first. And what we see is that's working. It's working super well. We don't even need the average, you know, sort of viewer of this to look at a statistic. They can just think about it for a moment. Yeah, you know, totally makes sense. We can see all the time that Washington, D.C. is thriving. It's bigger than ever. The campaigns are longer. There's more commercials. It seems like everybody has more power and more money and more, more, more. But I, as you know, the customer, the citizen, the voter, am super dissatisfied. How is that right? And so by, again, looking at it as an industry, we explain what's gone wrong. But the purpose for that explanation is solely to figure out where in that dysfunctional design could we intervene to change the dynamics so that the public interest becomes the most important customer. And that's what we ask ourselves. We analyze, we diagnose, and then we essentially prescribe because we, ha we can now identify what would be the most powerful changes we could make? So tell me about Michael Portner, your partner in this project and what he brings to the table. Yes, so Michael Porter is really considered the founder of modern corporate strategy. He is a professor at Harvard Business School and has um, transformed the way that virtually every business of a reasonable size, you know, of a certain size, manages their strategy. He also has transformed the way countries look at their strategy for their own economic growth. But in this particular case, um, he developed the five forces analysis, the five forces framework, sorry. And the five forces framework is the gold standard for understanding competition in every industry. And I used it 
to understand competition in my industry. I used it in my strategic planning when I was running a food manufacturing company in Wisconsin. So this was back in 2013, 14. I had a $250 million company, 350 employees. I was doing the strategy and using the five forces. And while I was using Michael Porter's five forces for food manufacturing, and we did make cheese, it is Wisconsin. That was one of the things we made. <laughs> I was at the same time, because I was deeply involved in politics and already wanted political change, I ran the parallel analysis of the five forces on the politics industry. Now, the five forces had never been used for that type of work before, but the ahas kept coming to me all through the process. So I actually somewhat say mea culpa because I really completed the heart of what is in the politics industry as the analysis all the way back in 2013 and 14, but then I was still running my company. So I you know, had to wait a while to work on that. After I sold the company, I decided that business people were missing in action when it came to changing the political system. They just thought it was totally irrational and all those crazy people over there. And I wanted more people to be engaged and investing time and resource into improving the overall trajectory of our political system and therefore our economy and the lives of citizens. So I decided to take this analysis, the five forces of politics and write it up. And fortunately for me, I was able to convince Michael Porter to join me as a co-author. I would say initially he wasn't super excited, um, but over time he has certainly become also very passionate um, about this work. And I think it was, well, I know it was a revelation to him that we could actually use the five forces to analyze the politics industry. So it's been exciting, you know, certainly for both of us. And by joining forces with Michael, I was able to get this work an initial look that would have been very hard to generate in another way because the legitimacy that Michael and Harvard Business School brought to this analysis really was critical to getting a general openness to the idea. And certainly we've had a great response since we originally wrote about this in September of 2017 was our original publication, you, not of the book, but a previous report. You are described in the book as someone who has experienced the five stages of political grief. What's that mean? Yes. Uh, you know, one of your first questions you asked me is, you know, where is this work coming from and how do I think the United States is doing? So I will go back to that in a sense. So what happened for me and I and other people often go through similar stages is that I was really involved in politics uh, and particularly back in the 2008 campaign. And then I found myself really disappointed with the results that came out of Washington, D.C. So I said, oh, gosh, I've worked so hard for candidates, you know, for a candidate I really believe in, and that's not delivering what I wanted. So that was my first stage of grief. So then I said, I know, I'll work on policy. 
And so I joined the CEO Fiscal Leadership Council of the campaign to fix the debt. And over time I discovered, oh, everybody knows what the right policy is and behind closed doors, they agree, but there's no political will to do it. I know, I'll work on culture. And so then I got involved early on with a new fabulous organization that was working to change the culture and encourage bipartisanship. And then in that effort, I found that a lot of people would join the organization. They would say they wanted to do this, but when push came to shove, the legislature, the legislators basically voted exactly the same way they did before they joined up. So I said, okay, it's not culture. I know now I'll work on candidates again, but this time I will work on independent candidates, not beholden to either side of this duopoly, which is what I think of the political system as. And then I found out, oh, guess what? They can't get elected, these independents. And at that time, I read a book by former Republican Congressman Mickey Edwards. And in it, he pointed out that it's the system. I never looked back. I could never unsee that. It was immediately evident that candidates, culture, policy, they basically all, perhaps all well-intended, let's even say, go into this system. And no matter who they are or what the policy is or what their desires are personally, it spits out dysfunction. The system delivers reliably like a machine gridlock and division because it's built to do that. And I'd always been a systems thinker. So what's shocking to me in a way is how I'd never seen that before because I saw it all the time in my business, but somehow in politics, I thought it was like different, but it's all about the system. As I often say now, the rules of the game, any game, the rules of the game affect the way the game is played and affect the outcomes of that game. So in order to change the way the game is played and change the outcomes, we have to change the rules. And the entire book is really a lead up to the action section where we say what rules need to be changed in order to change the behavior and the results that we get out of Congress. You referred to Congress as a duopoly. What does that mean? Again, a, it's a, a good parallel to what we see in industry. So people have heard of monopolies. So where one company has the entire market cornered and a duopoly is where there are only two competitors at the very least, two major competitors. And that's what we have in politics. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. Those are the only two. And what's interesting about a duopoly is that there's a rational way of competing in the duopoly that, we, that, that happens in industry, like you know, for-profit industry, and that we see in the politics industry. And that is that the two sides like to compete, they're incented to compete by dividing. They actually want to move their respective customers as far apart as they can. They don't want to compete here in the middle. They want to make them so far apart that this side hates this side and this side hates this side. And that way, even if neither of them do a good job, their customers don't want to go to the other side because they're so differentiated. 
And the other thing a duopoly, uh, players in a duopoly often do, and we see this in politics, the two sides, the parties and their allies, work very well together in one particular way. And that is to rig the rules of the game of politics to protect themselves jointly from new competition. As much as we think they'd like the other one to go away, actually they like this balance of fight. And that's how they keep appealing to their core customers and they keep getting the revenue and the campaign contributions and all of the money in the industry to act in this fight. So the division that we see, the money that we see, the gridlock that we see is a result of having two who are incented to work far apart from each other and are incented to keep everybody else out. And they're incented not to compromise ever because it works better for them to leave a problem unsolved than to compromise and give a little on either side, they'd rather just leave the problem unsolved, as I said, and keep it as an issue for the next election. So again, it's super important for us to understand that the way our politicians are behaving is entirely rational in this duopolistic competition, in a, in, and it's bad for the customers. In a for-profit industry, what you see generally in theory is that when we have competition in a monopoly or duopoly where it's bad for the customer, there'll be antitrust regulation that kicks in to say, oh, you, you can't be that large. You can't have the market cornered because now that's really anti-competitive. And the interesting thing is that, of course, the antitrust rules are essentially made by politicians and ever so conveniently, antitrust does not apply to the politics industry. So we're really stuck in this system that's guaranteed to keep doing what it's doing unless we change the rules. As Congress has been getting more partisan, the electorate is going the other direction. So we have a chart of uh, self-identification of, of party affiliation. And uh, the independents are now the largest sector of the voting public. 43% self-identify, while the parties are around 30%. So why is it that the public is becoming more independent, less aligned with parties, and Congress is going the other direction? You know what? <laughs> Nobody's satisfied. Even if we look in the 30% that still identify with one side or the other, often you find that if you delve deep into it, they also might like to see some better choices. But uh, why we see the public becoming independent is, again, because nobody's doing a good job. And what's interesting is, in any other industry this large, with that much customer dissatisfaction, so 40% being larger than either of the two sides, uh, you would see a new competitor that was responding to what customers wanted. But we don't see new competition in politics because, as I said a moment ago, that's where the parties work together really well in that one way, which is to rig those rules of the game 
to protect themselves jointly from new competition. I like to tell people that really politics isn't broken, it's fixed, as in a rigged game. And it is. And, and what they've effectively done now is create this situation where they don't really care how dissatisfied people are as long as they either stay home, not give votes to the opponent, or vote for their side just because that's you know sort of the lesser of two evils. And the one, th and, and that really is how either side wins, which is they get the voter to choose them as the lesser of two, to stay home, choose them as the lesser of two evils, or to vote for them because at least that party says, therefore, what that particular voter believes. But what neither side ever has to do, and we have to let this sink in, what neither side ever has to do is deliver results. Because no matter how disappointed a particular voter is, he or she likely still prefers what their side says therefore than what the one other choice says therefore. So instead of these results in the public interest, we get gridlock. Instead of bringing us together, we get division. Instead of new competition, you know, we just get the same old. And we're always looking for that new change candidate, and yet um, the change candidates, while they make a certain part of the population happy, don't end up being able to deliver fundamentally transformative results, which is not like, Susan, as if I'm saying that even with our prescription that we're going to have some utopia. Democracy's hard. Our issues are challenging. There are tons of trade-offs. I mean, if, if, the, if our problems were easy, even this crazy system would have solved them. So we've got, you know, challenge, absolutely, as does every country around the world. But we can have a system working under different rules and different incentives that will change the likelihood that Washington, D.C. gets stuff done. Was there a point in somewhat recent history where Congress worked effectively or more effectively? Yeah. So if we look over history there and we don't go into we don't go into all the ups and downs of Congress's working together in detail in this book. Um, although we talk about one particular era, the progressive era, where there was a lot of citizen-led change to the system, because that's what we need again now. Um, but, but when you look over time, there are, there's sort of an ebb and flow of how Congress works well. And that depends, it always depends on multiple, multiple factors, like what's going on in the culture, whether we're having a war, whether we have a common enemy in that war, wh whether we're in an economic expansion or a recession. Um, and it also always depends on what the rules of the game are at that moment, because you know our constitution, it's t I usually have a pocket constitution here, it's tiny, it's short, it fits in the pocket, right? So most of the rules aren't in the Constitution. They're just made up by the players in the game. And the, the parties actually have changed the rules substantively over time. So right now we are at a period of time where an enormous amount of power 
based on the rules of how Congress works, is concentrated in the hands of the leadership. So, you know, the Mitch McConnells and the Nancy Pelosi's of this particular Congress. And that is part of the problem that leads to these bad results that we're getting. And, and I talk about uh, the elections machinery and the legislative machinery. And to, to try to do a slightly better job of answering your question, has it worked over time? So one of what's changed that got us to today is that the elections machinery, so the rules of how we elect people to Congress, um, have not changed but over time, the competitors have figured out how to optimize them. We can go into some of the rules in detail later, but if you think about it, remember we always used to hear, oh, and then they're gonna compete for the center, then they have to tack to the middle. And eventually they realize, oh no, we don't have to do that at all. We can just stay super far apart and that's more effective and we'll just depress the middle. So they've optimized around this elections machinery and they've rigged it and perfected it to account for their growth and power. And the second thing is that this legislative machinery, which is the rules of the game of how we make you know, the laws, and it's not the schoolhouse rock version, where some of the viewers might remember that um, from you know, Saturday mornings growing up. And it's not that version, it's a very um, corrupted, set of practices, norms, and rules about how to work together, which no one, no rational person would ever do. I, I say it this way. If any, anyone listening works somewhere and, 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 you know, the company wanted to solve its biggest problems, I suspect one thing that they would not do is bring everybody together to work on these tough issues and then say, oh, just a moment, before we get started, let's count off by twos and divide into warring teams, and then we'll get straight to work. But effectively, that's how it is every day in Washington, D.C. So the combination of this distortion and optimization of the elections machinery over time with the distortion and optimization of the legislative machinery over time has led us to this point. When you look closely at the design, you will see that there is no other outcome that we can expect from the system other than the types of outcomes we're getting. Now, that isn't to say that things can't get worse. I do, one of the things today is that people can make the system worse, but they can't really make it transformatively better. And what we need, given the challenges we face as a country, is real dramatic uh, change, real um, action on our biggest issues, which have been, in many cases, outstanding for a couple of decades. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into first the elections machinery and then the legislative machinery to understand your uh, really analysis of what goes wrong. You tell us and remind us that in 2016, 10 percent of the House races were competitive, just 10 percent and 28 percent of the Senate. So why aren't our elections more competitive? Let me let me step back from that for just one moment to say if we want to talk about the elections machinery, Let's start with one idea, which is imagine two circles 
And one says, acting in the public interest. So this is the elected official, the member of Congress, doing what needs doing for us to make progress. And then this other one is the likelihood that that same legislator is gonna get reelected. And right now, there's no connection between doing what needs doing and keeping your job. So essentially, our election system is set up as if, again, everyone watching would be told at their job, yeah, I need you to do all these things. And if you do all these things really well, which is exactly what we need you to do, you're gonna lose your job. I mean, that's just a crazy design. No one would ever set anything up that way. And yet we did, which is to say our elections machine recreates that. So now back to the, so, so the challenge in our work is to say, one of the core challenges is how can we connect acting in the public interest with getting elected. And currently, what you referred to is that we have very little competition in our elections. So the reason why so few seats in Congress are competitive is in large part because the districts are either through artificial means, so gerrymandering, where the parties pick their voters instead of you know, the voters actually picking their leaders um, through either that or just a natural geographic sorting of sort of affinity for one side or the other, the general election, the November elections, aren't competitive because the, effectively the winner was already decided in the primary election. And that isn't right. It's not fair, but even more of a problem than the fact that if you go vote in November, your vote really doesn't make a big difference because we know who's going to win. If you're, if you're in a red district, whoever had won the Republican primary is going to win. If you're in a blue district, whoever had won the Democratic primary is going to win. But the bigger problem than that is having the election decided in the primary is the fundamental largest structural reason why Congress doesn't deliver results in the public interest. Because in the Democratic and Republican primary, there's low turnout. So fewer than 20% of voters turn out for, uh, for party primaries for Congress. And in off years, it's, you know, less uh, off presidential years, it's less than that. And so the voters who turn out are often more ideological than voters as a whole. So they push the candidates in the primary further to the right and further to the left than voters as a whole, let's say the general election voters really want. But most importantly, what they do is they affect the behavior of those legislators when they're in Congress because now a legislator elected through this primary system, let's say they're in Congress and they have an opportunity to vote yes on a bipartisan compromise bill, let's say on immigration or healthcare or you know, any of our greatest national problems like an infrastructure bill. Um, when they look at that bill, they say, they might say, is this a good idea? 
Is this the right thing for the country? Is this what the majority of my constituents want? But actually, they don't ask themselves that question. Because the first thing they ask is, am I going to make it back through my party primary if I vote for this bill? And if the answer to that question is no, and on all the tough issues, it virtually always is for both sides, then all the other answers to those important questions about being a good idea, et cetera, are irrelevant because the rational incentive to get reelected dictates that that legislature vote no. So again, in summary, what we see is that the party primary pushes Republicans to the right, pushes Democrats to the left, and tells them, don't compromise. Don't give up one iota of our ideology when you're legislating, because if you do, you'll be primaried. Many people have seen, if they think about it, the evolution of primary. It used to be just a noun as in, we're going to vote in the primary. And now it's a verb we're going to primary you. And what that means is that's the threat to a Democrat or a Republican that says, if you do this thing, if you compromise, if you, you know, work with the other side, um, if you don't stay with our further and further right and left ideology, we're going to run someone against you in your primary and you'll lose. So the structure of the party primary virtually guarantees that there is no incentive, there's an, there's an incentive not to work together. There's an incentive not to compromise. And that is a death knell for results. Well, and then, you know, we'll, and I'll, I'll sort of stop talking, but then we'll talk about, hopefully later, the other key problem structurally, which is that we never have any competition even when we're so frustrated with the results. Well, one example that you give of what happens in a polarized Congress is health care legislation. And here's a video that demonstrates uh, what you're talking about. It's the passage of the bill and then the Republicans' efforts to repeal. Let's watch. The A's are 60, the nays are 39, H.R. 3590 as amended, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act is passed. The bill is passed. 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 The yeas are 240. 235. 238. The bill is passed. The bill is passed. The motion is adopted. Agreed to. The bill is passed. 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 The bill is passed. 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 The bill is passed. Local governments don't have to provide health insurance to volunteer first responders. Two-thirds being in the affirmative. The bill is passed. Repeal the 2010 Affordable Care Act. The yeas are 239. The bill is passed. The joint resolution is Passed, 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 passed. Bill is passed. The House returns to an issue they dealt with a number of times, the Affordable Care Act. It's 258. The nays are 165. Majority voting affirmative. The bill is passed. So what we see there is a partisan vote for health care. And then the entire time the Republicans had control of the Congress, up to 75, 80 attempts to repeal the, uh, the, the health care law, always on a party line vote. How is that an example of, of what you're talking about in this book? We have a chart in the book where we show the division of votes between Republican and Democrat votes on landmark legislation over time. And what we used to see is that landmark legislation would pass with support from both parties. 
But in recent years, we now see that landmark legislation only passes when one party has enough, uh, has, has the numbers in the House and the Senate to basically ram their bill through with no support from the other parties. So we passed health care with no Republican votes. We passed um, the, the, jo- the, uh, the tax reform with no Democratic votes. And the only time we see the parties vote on something together is when there's a crisis plus an ability to put it on the credit card. So the national credit card passed the debt on. So like, yes, we saw bipartisan action on some of the early legislation to assist with the coronavirus devastation of the economy. And, but what that was is the parties came together because they both sensed electoral destruction. If they didn't, we're in election year, there were Democratic and Republican votes, but they didn't really call each other out on the fact that those trillions of dollars just got added to the national debt. Whereas normally, if one side doesn't want to pass something the other side wants, then they'll say, oh, that costs too much and we don't have the money. But they're willing to work together when they can, you know, sort of put it on the bill and help themselves both in the uh, in the upcoming elections. So that is not a good outcome. I mean, I'm not I don't want to get into the details about what we quote should have done for COVID specifically. But we can't be a country where the conditions required for action are crisis plus credit card. We have to be a country that can solve problems or improve our capability of dealing with challenges before the fact. And that's not, you know, that's not the country that we currently are. So, um, it's no wonder that we see now the public senses this, you know, and the trust in government is, you know, down to under 20%. And that is a devastating number if we think about what it takes to be sort of united as a country to solve our problems and move forward. It's so broken that I do think there's, I mean, it's, it's devastating that it's so broken, but this is a time, even in the midst of this election cycle and all of the drama and emotion and deep current challenges that we face, where nonetheless there is an appetite from more people than one might have thought to turn their eye towards how can we not get here again? How can we fix something so that we're better prepared in the future? And that's why I am you know, excited for the work that's being done in this new, I mean, I'm one of many. There are many talented people now working in what I call political innovation. In the politics, I, I want to jump in. Uh, we have about 20 minutes left, and we've got to get to your two major oh. solutions because <laughs> our time is evaporating. <laughs> so in the politics industry, you do have two 
uh, big-ticket solutions to uh, what's happening to our political system. The first is something called top five primaries. How does that work? Right. So our first solution is to change the elections machinery so that people are incented to deliver results and that there will be competition, which is to say accountability if they don't deliver results. There are two steps to take. Together, we call them final five voting. The first step is to get rid of party primaries, which I described as completely broken. And instead, when we go to vote on primary day, let's have one open top five primary. So you show up at the polls, everybody running is on the same ballot, Democrats, Republicans, Greens, Libertarians, Independents, pick your favorite, and the top five finishers will advance to the general election instead of just one Democrat and one Republican. And you won't know who's gonna win at the end of primary day, but you'll know who your five competitors are. Now we have an opportunity to have a dynamic and diverse and you know intense competition between these five candidates and five sets of ideas and visions and views between the primary and the general election. And the second thing now we have, so now we've gotten rid of that, you'll lose your primary problem if you solve problems in Washington, DC. And then the second thing we do is in the general election, we will stop just picking one person out of the five. We'll actually get a chance to indicate our preferences as in, you know, this is my favorite of the five. I can't wait for this person to, you know, become my senator all the way down to my fifth choice, something like over my dead body, do I want this person to win? Now, you don't have to rank them all, but you can rank as many as you have enough information about to have opinions. And I invite people to read the book to understand the mechanics of this. It's actually super much easier than you might think. It creates a series of instant runoffs where if those five candidates, on the, when the first choices are counted, nobody has over 50%, then we drop who comes in last and we run the totals again. And this results in a winner that has the broadest support from the most number of voters, but importantly for the incentives, it also gets rid of the spoiler and the wasted vote problem that all new competition has now. So right now, we didn't get to talk about this problem. Whenever somebody wants to compete, who's not a Democrat or Republican, who says, I want to get those 40% of voters who don't identify with Democrats or Republicans, or I want to even run you know, further to the right or further to the left, I want to, I'm different than Republicans and Democrats. Or I'm a Republican, but I'm not far enough to the right to make it through my primary. Anyone who is like that, they can't be successful under the existing rules because voters end up feeling, believing, and voters are right, that if they vote for that new competitor, they're either wasting their vote or they're spoiling the election, which is to say they're, if they vote for that person, they're accidentally going to help elect the person they like the least. So if you go back to 2016, although we're not talking about the presidential election in our book, we're talking about Congress, but I'll give you this example. In 2016, voters who 
wanted to vote for the Green Party candidate, who is considered further to the left than Hillary Clinton, were told, oh, don't vote for Jill Stein, because if you do, you'll take votes away from Hillary Clinton, spoil the election for her, and inadvertently help elect Donald Trump. The same thing was true on the right. Don't vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian, because if you do, you'll take votes away from Donald Trump and spoil the election for him and accidentally you know, help elect Hillary. Whenever you have this spoiler wasted vote problem, it means new competition doesn't in general ever enter. So when we get final five voting, which is top five primaries plus ranked choice voting in the general election, this series of instant runoffs, we eliminate the incentive to not solve problems. And we make sure that if people don't solve problems and the public is dissatisfied that there will now be new competition. Competition to serve the public interest instead of serving the political industrial complex as their first concern. So final five voting, Super exciting, changes the rules of the game, changes the way the game is played, changes the likely outcomes of that game. And that's the opportunity that we have as a country. So Maine is a state that has uh, ranked choice voting and uh, employed it in the last election. We have a clip from uh, Hans van Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation uh, commenting on CNBC after the November election last time around about how it worked. Let's listen. Maine, as you know, um, last year, so in the 2018 election, uh, had the first federal election ever, a congressional race, uh, using the ranked choice voting system. That race shows why ranked choice voting is not a good idea. Um, the candidate who got the largest number of votes, the largest plurality in the first round of, of tabulations, did not actually win the race. And because there were multiple rounds of tabulation, apparently thousands of ballots cast by voters were thrown out. I think the average voter has the same feelings that former California Governor Jerry Brown has. They, they find ranked choice voting to be confusing and overcomplicated. What's your reaction? Uh, my reaction is these are absolutely the kind of arguments that we are going to see from partisans on the right and partisans on the left. So in California, they already changed their party primary. Just like in Maine, they already changed from plurality voting to ranked choice voting. And in both cases, Democrats and Republicans are often jointly against it. Uh, because it really threatens their duopoly. And <laughs> they like to say how hard it is. Actually, I believe it was the Democratic Secretary of State in Maine that said that if you implemented ranked choice voting, we would see, oh, I should fact check this. I'm going to say it was rioting in the streets. And, and you know, so... Oftentimes, Republicans and Democrats don't like it. They've gotten elected under these existing rules. They want to make it that way forever. And they'll bring up that it's super complicated. And yet, we have this kind of system in Australia. We've had it for years. Um, there's no reason to think that Americans are less able 
to pick their choices than Australians. It doesn't make any sense. We pick our choices all the time. It's my favorite ice cream flavor all the way to this is the one I can't stand. And these are just arguments that would be put up by those who get their power and thrive in the existing system. And we can expect that. But what we'll see is in half of the states, the voters can bypass the politicians entirely and vote on referendums to implement these change of the, changes of the rules for their state. So eventually, the citizens will have their say and will get past these types of fundamentally bogus arguments. How many states would have to make a change like ranked choice voting in, in order for it to really make a difference in Congress? The first thing to note is that I, I very much support ranked choice voting. It's part of you know, our proposal. Having said that, I focus like a laser on what's called final five voting, which is both things. Go from the party primary to the open top five primary plus ranked choice voting in the general election. One plus one equals five in this case. So the benefits that I talk about are really coming from this combination and I don't recommend that states and citizens put their effort into one, although it's better, one is better, but doing both of them is not very much more work and gets so much more benefit. And here is the other amazing thing, getting to your question. We don't need all the states to change these rules in order to begin changing the incentives that are governing legislative behavior in Congress. So Article I of the Constitution gives all the rules about elections, gives the power to make those rules and change those rules to the states individually. Half the states can do it through a referendum, which I mentioned, and the other half need a, a bill through their legislature with the, with the governor's signature. If we changed these rules in only five states, let's take that as a hypothetical, you'd now have 10 senators and maybe 50 representatives, um, depending on how large the states were that changed the rules, going to Washington, D.C. under these new incentives, which is they know that in their state, they won't lose their primary. They'll be in the top five, even if they, you know, sort of sign something and don't do exactly what, you know, they're supposed to say on their party side. And they know that there'll be competition against them if they don't deliver results. And so you have 10 people there. They might still be Democrats and Republicans. They likely will be. Um, but they know they're actually accountable now to the public interest instead of to the just to party primary voters and to special interests and donors. They're accountable to general election voters. They'll act differently. And in the Senate, You'd have these 10 people, neither side would have a majority, neither Republicans or Democrats would have a majority elected under the old incentives. And so you basically create a fulcrum, a powerful problem-solving oriented fulcrum 
which could change the likelihood that that entire body sees as possible uh, working together to address problems. So what I love is that we're federalist you know, um, system, so the states have all this power. Let's use that to begin to change results in Washington, D.C., as soon as this or the next election cycle, there actually are three ballot initiatives on the ballot for this November for, it's not final five voting, it's really final four voting, because uh, they're going to be top four primaries plus ranked choice voting general elections. But that's a pretty exciting development. So we could then, if these all pass, we'll see six senators elected under this, and let's say 30 representatives elected under these new rules. We have just five minutes left, and in the book, there's also a lot more uh, analysis of what's wrong with Congress and prescriptions for change in the institution once people get there. But let's move and spend our last uh, few minutes together on how you move from this book to actually making change. You've described a a system that self-perpetuates, lots of incentives to stay the way it is. How do you hope uh, that change will, in fact, be implemented and the system will be able to function differently? Three things. First, as we talked earlier, unfortunately, the amount of frustration in the country is really at an all-time high. So that's when you can see change. We have that whole chapter in the book on the progressive era, which is when there was frustration in the country 100 years ago over the excesses and inequality, et cetera, of the Gilded Age. And they came, citizens came together and moved forward reforms of the political system then. So we have dissatisfied citizens. The second thing is, as we just talked about, you have a system that allows the states to make these changes individually and allows voters to make the changes without the say-so of politicians. We don't need a constitutional amendment. We don't need an act of Congress. And in, again, half the states, you don't even need the state legislature to say, okay. The citizens can do it by themselves. And the third thing that we have, Susan, is that as we've always had, we have courageous leaders and citizens in the country who are standing up to say it shouldn't be this way. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the book is a, a piece that I didn't author. It's the foreword. And it's written by two currently serving members of Congress. Chrissy Houlihan, who is a Democrat from Pennsylvania, and Mike Gallagher, who is a Republican from Wisconsin. Chrissy and Mike both served in the military right out of school. For Mike, he left Princeton and went in the Marines. For Chrissy, she left Stanford and went into the Air Force. Illustrious careers. And what they write in the foreword is, when we were serving in the military, We were on the same team for America. And then when we decided we wanted to continue to serve our country, and I'm just paraphrasing here, you know, we ran and now we're in Congress and somehow we're automatically on two separate teams. And I'm going to just grab the book here and read one thing. Um, Okay, they say, so why aren't we on this? Why aren't we now on the same for America team? because the system is built to tear us apart. 
In American politics, winning isn't winning unless the other side is losing and losing badly. This shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be. This book proves it. The prescription is powerful. It is nonpartisan. What's more, it's doable. And they conclude by asking people to engage. So when you have bipartisan members of Congress coming together, and we see the same in Wisconsin where we have bipartisan members of our state legislature coming together to say, we may not agree on policy, but we agree on this. And we have bipartisan members, uh, uh, or you know, cross-partisan coalition of business leaders in Wisconsin saying, we don't agree on any of the policies, but we agree on these rules of the game. It is that kind of leadership and that kind of courage coming from people elected in the existing system that combined with this enormous time of frustration and the fact that the system actually allows for us to make these changes. It's shocking that the best thing to do is not a constitutional amendment. The best thing to do is change these things that we have the power to change based on the Constitution and ballot initiatives. When you have all those pieces together, we'll make that change. I predict that within one election cycle, we will see that final five voting is the preeminent reform advocated for by citizens and courageous political leaders across the spectrum around the, count, around the country. And we can then pass these initiatives, we can uh, pass and get the bills signed, change the incentives for Congress, change the results, and change the ability of new competition to hold the system accountable so that the public interest is the most important. I am, even in the midst of all of our problems, uh, unbelievably excited about doing this. So I, I'm so, I so appreciate your talking to me about this today. Thank you, Susan. Well, with that prediction, we'll say thanks to you as well for uh, spending an hour with C-SPAN. The book is called The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine Gale, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.